We actively invest in communities to promote social change. We actively invest in our local arts and music scene to give space for artists. We actively pursue underserved communities in the use of our space. We are an awesome supporter of the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival, hosting an incredible offside show. Wednesday, March 4th, 9 to 11 p.m. with LGBTQ plus and allied comics. So come out to 3158 Mission Street at Cesar Chavez, San Francisco. It's open every day at 2 p.m. with an incredible back patio. El Rio is your dive. Now, if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Top three cooking tips. One, if you're cutting an onion, remember to cry. Two, Put mustard on your marshmallows after they finish boiling in vinegar at a low temperature. Three, knives are not spoons. Well, I say, if it's in town, it's time for a train ride.
NBC Symphony Orchestra. Conducted by the legendary maestro Arturo Toscanini.
another, you get it. And you're going to meet the winners of the Harvest Moon Contest, Jimmy and Jovita dancing to Little Richard and Tootie Fruity. She's the gather. 
And good morning, mutineers. Welcome to the Labor and Love Show. My name is Bill Morgan, a.k.a. The Bee. I hold down the morning shift with you. Every Saturday morning from 10 to 12, Mutiny Radio presents Labor and Love Radio, the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the negotiating table or you didn't, you're on the menu. You were on the menu. You're one of those people who was laid off. Sorry, too bad. Been good to know you. Never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Of course, they don't want you to unionize your labor. The cheapest that they can get it is what makes them rich. Okay, sort of a all over the all over the map intro there. We started out with Arturo Toscanini in the year nineteen forty four upon hearing that the that Italy had been liberated from the Germans. He composed a a hymn, I guess you'd call it with the including elements of the national anthems of several different countries and ending there with the Internacional, which we're going to hear more from. And um, second after that, we had a couple of songs by the great Richard Pennyman, as you know by now. We lost him this week. A voice for all kinds of things. A voice for liberation, emotional, sexual liberation. Also a messenger. I want to talk a little about that. What Richard meant for me as a white, segregated uh, boy growing up in the suburbs. And uh, third... We had uh, In the Mood, and that's about to my mom. We've got a lot of catching up today, to do today. We've got, uh, well, we've got Mother's Day. We've got Little Richard. We've got May Day. So all kinds of catching up to do. And that one was In the Mood by the great Glenn Miller. Uh, Glenn Miller, always a very controlled, stylized sound. Uh, but in a, in a song like "In the Mood," uh, it rocks. You can't you can't hold still. Even uh, you know, seventy, eighty years later, Glenn Miller. And I did want to say good morning to all my memories of my mom, uh, Christine Morgan, who taught me not to cross a picket line. We went to see Peter Pan one day, cartoon, in the early 50s. 
And we stopped abruptly when she saw a picket line. She said, we're not going in because we're not scabs. Oh, scab? I didn't know what a scab was. But So she took us to lunch and she explained to us uh, what a picket line was, what scabs were, why you never cross a picket line. She was no... My mom was not an intellectual, but... She had a knowledge, sort of a base knowledge, awareness. She knew that in some way crossing the picket line would be inimical to her family. It would harm them in some way. Another lesson that she taught, and we'll talk about that a little later anyway. Um, So yeah, little Richard... um, First of all, let's see what we got. What information we've got about Little Richard. uh, One of the giants of rock and roll. Um, Born in Macon, Georgia, 1932. Father, a church deacon and a, a brick mason who sold moonshine. Mother, a member of the church. They originally wanted to name him Ricardo, but Richard resulted in Richard instead. In his childhood, he was nicknamed Little Richard by his family because of his small and skinny frame. A mischievous child who paid pranks on neighbors. And can't you see that in his work? In his. Public ceremonies. Um, he began to sing at church in a young age, in church, as so many of the great rhythm and blues artists did. Um, he had a slight deformity that one leg was shorter than the other. People would mock him for his effeminate appearance. He later recalled that people in his neighborhood sang gospel songs throughout the day during segregation to keep a positive outlook because there was so much prejudice, so much poverty in those days. So people sang to keep their connection with God. He had a loud voice, and he recalled that he was always changing the key upwards, and that they once stopped him from singing in church for screaming and hollering so loud, earning the nickname Warhawk. As a child, he would beat on the steps of the house on tin cans, pots and pans, whatever, while singing. So there it is. Um, just about comes out and says it, that... Uh, He played music. He got into music to get out, get away from the terrible situation that he found himself in as a young black man in Georgia. Georgia was always a goodbye state, the state that when the slaves realized they were going to Georgia, they gave up all hope. 
one of his major influences was someone we play a lot of on this show, Sister Rosetta Tharp. Um, he got a job at a Macon City Auditorium. Sold Coca-Cola to the crowd during concerts of star performers such as Cab Calloway, Lucky Millinder, and his favorite singer, Sister Rosetta Tharp. Tharp invited him to open her show in October of 1947. After the show, Tharp paid him. Pennyman said he was inspired to play the piano after he heard Ike Turner. And he started appearing in, in shows. He was inspired to wear turbans and capes in his career by Nubila, who carried a black stick and exhibited something he called the Devil's Child. So he, he started playing shows um, for a while. Pennyman decided to become a rhythm and blues singer after befriending Billy Wright and uh, started to learn how to be an entertainer, wearing a pompadour hairdo similar to Wright's, as well as styling a pencil mustache, pancake makeup, and flashier clothes. Made some records in the early 50s that went nowhere. Um, signed with Dr. Roby's Peacock Records in 1953, recording eight sides. Four with the Johnny Otis band. This is all in Houston, Texas. encourage his musicians to play loud and Tutti Frutti, the one we played for you this morning, was released as a single that November and became an instant hit, reaching number two on Bo Billboard's R&B chart, crossing over to pop charts both in the United States and overseas in the United Kingdom. Long Tall Sally, the other song we played for you. Hit number one on the R&B chart and number 13 on the top 100 while reaching the top 10 in Britain. He built up his backup band, The Upsetters. He began playing on package tours. The difference between Pennyman and a similar hitmaker early rock and roll by stating that Similarity between Little Richard and Fats Domino for recording purposes were close. Pennyman would sometimes stand up at the piano while he was recording, and that on stage where Domino was plodding and slow, Pennyman was dynamic, completely uninhibited, unpredictable. Little Richard. Seven, seven singles in the U.S., Slippin' and Slidin', Rip It Up, Ready, Teddy, The Girl Can't Help It, Lucille, 
safer white recording artist such as Pat Boone re-recorded the song, Tutti Frutti, sending it to the top 20, doing better with it than Pennyman did. Of course, Pat Boone sterilized the lyrics. It's not what Little Richard was about at all. Um, anyway. Chuck Berry would enable an audience of both races to enter the buildings. Fats Domino, Richard Pennyman, still segregated at this time, blacks on the balcony and whites on the floor. Pennyman's performances enabled audience to come together to dance, but he always had to keep in mind not to be a threat to white men. His popularity helping to shatter the myth that black performers could not successfully perform at white-only venues, especially in the South. He'd put his leg up on the piano, running on and off stage, and throwing his souvenirs to the audience. Although debated among sculptures, scholars as disingenuous, Pennyman said he began to be more flamboyant on stage, so no one would think he was after the white girls. Pennyman said that at a show at Baltimore's Royal Theater, women were throwing their undergarments on stage at him, resulting in other female fans repeating the action. First time that it happened to any artist, he claimed. The show had stopped several times during the night. People being restrained, and what it was, of course, was rock and roll. Just that backbeat, that rock and roll. So, we lost them this week. Pennyman would go back and forth between the church and uh, rock and roll, which at various times he called the devil's music. Pennyman helped uh, Paul McCartney with his distinctive vocalizations. Um, all through his life. So, and he struggled with homosexuality one time on, on David Letterman he said that God had helped him change who knows if he ever did okay. eighth on the list of the hundredth arti <clears throat> artists of all time um, virtually every rock and roll rhythm and blues performer paid tribute to rock to Little Richard. So, lost Richard Pennyman, 1932, so he was in his 80s. So Richard Pennyman, what did he represent? 
personally, I can say this. <clears throat> I was raised in the 50s. I could say, yeah, I'm a child of the 60s, but I'm also a child of the 50s. And in the 50s, my world was segregated. I was raised in a suburb of San Francisco, and that was virtually all white and restricted in that sense. Um, the black and brown kids I saw at school were in the mentally retarded class or the special ed class, whatever you wanted to call it. And I had no idea what was going on in the quote-unquote ghetto. My mother employed a cleaning lady and sometimes I would go and exchange, I'd go and pick up clothes or leave clothes off for her. That was my only contact. And her sons and I looked at each other like we were total strangers. And at the time, it was unnerving. I didn't know how to deal with it. People like Little Richard, what Little Richard did was bring the ghetto to me, to white kids, okay? Um, all the stuff that he was talking about was happening in the white suburbs, but it was hushed up. It was undercover. Little Richard talked about transvestite, long, tall Sally, um, men dressing as women and taking on male sex partners, um, good golly, Miss Molly, you sure like to ball, huh? not much doubt about what that was about, tutti frutti, originally the, the words were tutti frutti, loose booty, uh, but they had to cha be changed, and as Pat Boone said once, <laughs> that isn't what we were about at all. We changed the songs so they were cleaned up for the white kids. So, little Richard brought that world to us, the world of the conch, the sort of screaming loud, you know, uh, brought that beat to us, to so many of us. A lot of us, a lot of people, I'm sure, would say that little Richard was one of the first influences, cultural influences, that led them to question their lives and where they were going to go in their lives. This was a world that I was drawn to. Um, so, little Richard brought the ghetto to us. I'd say I wanted to play, so th this is Labor and Love, and I want to talk about the death cult that's being forced on workers at this time. But uh, let's do, um, saw the high women last night, city of New Orleans, how's that?
city of New Orleans, Illinois Central, Monday morning rail, 15 cars and 15 restless riders, three conductors and 25 sacks of mail, all along the southbound Odyssey, the train pulls out from Kankakee. And rolls along past houses, farms, and fields And passing trains that have no names And freight yards filled with old black men And the graveyards of the rusty automobile There ain't no one keeping score And pass the paper bag that holds the bottle Feel the wheels rumbling neath the floor And the sons of Pullman porters And the sons of engineers Ride their father's magic carpet made of steel Mother put your babe to sleep, rocking to the gentle beat, and the rhythm of the rails is all they feel. Mississippi darkness rolling down to the sea. But the towns and the people seem to just fade into a bad dream. And the steel rails still ain't heard the news. Conductors sing your songs again, and passengers will please refrain. This train has got the disappearing railroad blue. Good morning, America. 
We hear it over and over. This one's for mom. This is one of her favorite uh, people, Maria Callas. And Maria Callas uh, here is from Hamburg, 1962. My aunt and mother took us to see Maria Callas. Of course, we didn't know who I was. I didn't pay any attention. We were bored stiff. But I hear Callis sings Carmen, and she, well, this one's for you, Mom. (laughs) 
So there you have it, Maria Callas, in honor of my mom singing the Abanera from Carmen. And before that, we had the Highwaymen. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson, and yes, Johnny Cash singing City of New Orleans. So now we're going to go check out what's happening in the labor movement all over the world. And after that, we'll talk about what I call a death cult. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, May 15th, 2020. I'm Mark Boulanger. In a report this week, making the future safe for public services after the pandemic. Nurses in the United States are demanding better protection. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. It's fun to be in This is Radio Labor. Because of the pandemic, countries all around the world are being forced to face the consequences of poorly funding their public services in the past few decades. As the focus changes to what economies will look like after the pandemic, many are discussing the need to reinvigorate public services with adequate funding or taking back services which were contracted out to private entities. Remunicipalization is at the top of the list. That is why Public Services International has partnered with the Transnational Institute to publish a book entitled The Future is Public. The PSI is the global union which represents national public service unions at the world level. The Institute, which operates under its acronym TNI, is an international research and advocacy institute based in the Netherlands. A while back, I spoke to the PSI's expert on remunicipalization, Daria Chibrail. I asked her to define remunicipalization. So, Mark, remunicipalization, or insourcing as some call it, it's the return of public services from private control and ownership of any form, so public-private partnerships, outsourcing, concessions or leases, to full public ownership, management or control. This kind of phenomenon is linked to the term municipal because it is uh, observed eminently at the sub-national level. It is mostly municipalities, cities, local governments and their communities who are taking back control and in some cases we, we say deprivatizing their public services for a whole uh, series of reasons. What is interesting about this process is that very often what we see is not just a return to public as it was before the privatization, but these processes are creating a space and opportunities to make public services more democratic and participatory by giving a chance to service users, but also community groups, workers, residents, to co-design together with the local authorities the public services they need. There's also another terminology which is connected to remunicipalization, and it's emerging increasingly, and this is 
municipalization, which refers to the creation of new public service that was not existing before. And this, again, is being observed mostly at the, the local government level. So let me just mention uh, a few figures which can give you the, the magnitude of these trends. Recent data from the Transnational Institute, which will be published in a forthcoming book titled The Future is Public in April 2020, have identified 1,400 cases of remunicipalization or municipalization involving more than 2,400 cities in 58 countries, and these across all different sectors of services. Why should cities consider remunicipalization? Well, first of all, remunicipalization is a very practical, pragmatic response for local governments to deliver quality public services to their local communities following the clear failure of privatization to do so and keep its promises. After 20 years of systematic privatization, practically across all countries, around the world, what we see and uh, local government representatives of, of all across all political lines very often seem to agree on that. The access to basic services such as water, affordable housing, energy, but also healthcare, uh, education and child social and elderly care has become more expensive, more difficult to access. You can find more information about the book The Future is Public on the TNI website at tni.org. May 12th is the International Nurses Day, a day set aside to recognize the efforts of nurses in caring for people. The day is especially pertinent this year because of the COVID-19 pandemic and maybe especially so in the United States, which has the world's highest number of cases. More than 80,000 people have died in the U.S. because of COVID-19. Fighting for frontline nurses is National Nurses United, the NNU. It recently held a media conference to call for help for its members. Bonnie Castillo is the NNU's executive director. We have the extensive education, the expertise, and the calling to do this work. So nurses are confident that we can care for COVID-19 patients and even stop the spread of the virus if, and that is an if, we are given the protections and resources we need to do our jobs. This is not the time to relax our approach or weaken existing state or federal regulations. This is the time to step it up. We need to step up all our efforts. We're calling on our facilities to follow the precautionary principle, which says we don't wait until we know for sure something is dangerous until we actually act to protect people. We have to act now. As union nurses, we are uniquely positioned to speak out about what our employers and government agencies need to do to protect healthcare workers, our patients, and the public's health. Right now, in many hospitals and clinics, nurses do not have the necessary personal protective equipment, what we call 
PPE. Also, the necessary education and training that they need to know on how to use the PPE or enough staff on hand 24-7 to help care for COVID-19 patients. As of today, more than 80 of our nurse members have been in quarantine. It is not a successful strategy to leave nurses and other healthcare workers unprotected so that one patient can sideline so many workers at once. When we are quarantined, we are not only prevented from caring for our COVID-19 patients, but also take, taken away from caring for our cancer patients, our cardiac patients, our premature babies. Nurses need to be protected so that we can care for all our patients when they need us. Here in California, where we enjoy the highest protective regulations on infectious disease, we actually have the ability to get this right. Nurses look forward to working together with our local, state, and federal government agencies to enact the coordinated response we need to stop this virus from spreading further. I'd like to welcome NNU uh, NNU Kathy Kennedy, who is NNU Vice President, with more on what our nurses are, have been doing and working through this COVID-19 virus. Good morning. My name is uh, Kathy Kennedy. I'm a registered nurse of 40 years and currently work as a neonatal ICU staff nurse at Kaiser Roseville for the last 38 years. A patient who tested positive for the COVID-19 virus died in our medical center this week. As nurses and healthcare providers, we mourn for the family and the patient, patient excuse me, for, this is upsetting to me, so I apologize, for this patient and his family and for his community, and we pray that he is the last to succumb to this virus. We also hope that this death will compel hospital management to take seriously our calls for open communication, continuous training in infectious disease protocols and personal protective equipment, PPE, to keep us all safe at work and in turn our wider communities. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world in 35 languages. Here's a small sample of all their hard work. Our top story sections included links to coverage of the arrest of four journalists in Belarus, demands by nurses' unions around the globe for less praise and more personal protective equipment, how a British union is honoring a teachers' union activist in the Philippines, and calls from virtually everywhere for a planned and effective economic recovery that includes workers and not just big business. We also had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. In Papua New Guinea, public transport workers took their buses off the roads in a protest against police abuse and corruption. With employers and governments refusing to act, unions are demanding changes to work processes and equipment. The beef industry is one example, with unions in several European countries across North America, in Brazil, and in Australia, all reacting to the high levels of infection and even deaths in that industry. 
In the UK, several public transport worker unions were threatening a strike as passengers flooded back into the system, ignoring physical distancing requirements. This only days after a worker died after being spat on by a passenger infected with COVID-19. And in Uruguay, the labor movement is mobilizing workers and warning government and employers that COVID-19 cannot be used as cover for an attack on workers' rights. We even had some good COVID-19 news this week. A number of Turkish unions have turned their offices and training facilities over to hospitals for use as clinics. Our Working Women pages, now available in nine languages, included stories detailing the ways in which women in the Middle East and North Africa are especially hard hit by the pandemic and its consequences, how women are excluded from pandemic compensation programs in Ireland, and a study of the effects that raising the retirement age in the UK has had on women. Our current photo of the week is of Argentinian workers volunteering at their union's headquarters, which has been turned into a food bank during the COVID-19 crisis. This is Derek Blackheader from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Union Nation with UNION. international labor news you can use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about caring for each other through global solidarity. Radio Labor. Another one for my mom. She loves this song.
started out with UNION, always a strong supporter of unions, a person of great humanity. When I was uh, going to the third grade in San Francisco, I was assigned a Japanese-American teacher. In fact, 
a woman who had spent a long time in a, in a camp, a concentration camp in the 40s as a young girl, and who was one of the first Japanese-American teachers hired after World War II. And they put her at Parkside, at Uloa School, in a pretty much all-white neighborhood with a very high percentage of uh, casualties from World War II. Uh, in other words, they set her up to fail. That's what I think. first day of school, a lot of the white parents there, it was an all-white school. All the, the parents there were very upset, went to the principal's office, gathered in the hall to figure out what they were going to do so that their kid wouldn't be taught by a Jap. Uh, and my mother stepped forward, walked up to the teacher and said, uh, my name is Christine Morgan. I want to know if I can help you. She knew what was the right thing to do? Um, the anger at the teacher kind of dissolved after that. They were able to put together a class. There was an ugly racial incident later in the year. But uh, my mother was the master, mistress of the situation. Okay, so... Let's talk now. I've mentioned it several times, the, uh, the death cult. Uh, American workers are being told uh, in a number of places that if their government, their governor, opens up their, their state, they'll have to go back to work in two states at least, in Iowa and Texas, if you go back to work or you decide not to go back to work because of the chance of catching coronavirus, you can lose your unemployment. Coronavirus, the risk of it is not a valid reason not to go to work. So you're being forced to go and risk your life at the same time, Mr. McConnell and his allies want to indemnify your employers, the people you work for, the companies, the corporations, from any lawsuits that might result from the back-to-work order. So you're told, go back to work or starve, basically. You won't have any unemployment income. Nobody's going to hire you because nobody's hiring anybody. If you demand safety at your job, see, this is the job safety, job site issue. How can they say that the threat of coronavirus is not an issue? Uh, wherever people congregate and in factories and places where people congregate, the virus spreads like wildfire. So you're being told with a gun to your head that you have to go back to work. And if you don't go back to work, you got to face starvation. Okay, you got to face poverty. And 
if you do go back to work and do get the virus and die, your family has no recourse. So we're forcing you to go back to work, but we're not going to take the responsibility is what it amounts to. And in the United States now, workplace being run by a death cult, government, people who want you to go back to work. Okay, if you want to go back to work, go back to work. Are you going to be responsible for the spread of the disease? Moreover, your employer is getting out of all responsibility. So uh, this is what we're dealing with <laughs> in uh, in our everyday lives. Let's look at our labor history in two minutes issue. Today it's dealing with the death of a giant of the labor industry, A. Philip Reimer. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1979. That was the day we lost one of the giants of the U.S. labor movement, A. Philip Randolph. A. Philip Randolph spent his life working for black workers and the cause of labor. He organized the first national black union to be recognized by the American Federation of Labor, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. The fight for union recognition took 12 years, and the porters signed their first contract in 1937. Randolph went on to lead the effort to desegregate war industries and armed services during and after World War II. He was one of the leading organizers of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, one of the most memorable actions of the civil rights movement. He also worked tirelessly to break down discrimination within the labor movement. He was elected the first black vice president of the AFL-CIO in 1955. Randolph's dedication to the cause of labor was summed up when he said, quote, The essence of trade unionism is social uplift. The labor movement has been the haven for the dispossessed, the despised, the neglected, the downtrodden, the poor. But Randolph also consistently declared that no movement for social justice can be complete unless it is also inclusive. While organizing for the desegregation of the war industries during World War II, Phillips argued, quote, Equality is the heart and essence of democracy, freedom and justice, equality of opportunity in industry, in labor unions, schools and colleges, government, politics, and before the law. There must be no dual standard of justice, no dual rights, privileges, duties, or responsibilities of citizenship. No dual forms of freedom. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1917. That was the day of the founding of the Library Employees Union of Greater New York. This was the first public library workers union in the United States. From its beginning, 
One of the key efforts of the union was the fight for equal rights for women and men in the library field. Maud Malone was one of the leading spokeswomen for the union. She was also an active supporter of the campaign for women to win the right to vote. The union leaders worked to build relationships with other women's rights organizations. According to a report on the first two years of the union's activities, the union arose out of the need to remedy the particularly bad working conditions and wages of librarians, especially in the public libraries of the city. The union wanted to improve the promotion system, especially for women. In order to strengthen their cause, the union leaders corresponded with libraries as far away as England, France, Australia, Africa, and South America. These exchanges centered on discussing the library question from the union point of view. Promoting the union point of view to library workers proved to be a tough task. The union tried to convince library employees to think of themselves as workers and part of the working class. The union advocated for library employees to be included as part of the city's civil service system. But many of these workers thought of themselves as professionals. And in the end, this hesitancy to buy into the idea of unionization led to the downfall of the Library Employees Union, which ended its efforts in 1929. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1968. That was the day that workers across Paris joined students in a citywide general strike. College students had begun an occupation at the famed Sorbonne University earlier that May. These students were protesting what they saw as governmental repression in post-war France. A story by NPR marking the 40th anniversary of the protests described the situation in France, where women could not wear pants to work and married ones needed a husband's permission to open a bank account. Homosexuality was a crime. Factory workers could be fired at will. The news on the single TV channel required governmental approval. And the overcrowded education system was authoritarian. The students protested French leader Charles de Gaulle and the police. The addition of workers to the protest greatly increased its scope and impact. Paris and much of the country ground to a halt. President de Gaulle was able to weather the protests and keep his political power. By the end of June, most workers had returned to their jobs, but the country would never be the same. The protests of that spring became known as the Social Revolution. It was a turning point in the nation's history, and institutions from workplaces to universities would undergo a liberalization due to the protests. One of the most lasting images from the strike was a series of posters, simple designs emblazoned with the slogans and demands of those involved. One such poster called people to strike, declaring, Working now is working with a gun to your head. Another read simply, Factories, Universities, Union. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. There's our Labor History in Two. A. Philip Randolph, Library Workers, and uh, the Revolution, Rebellion in France in 1968, 
which gave rise to a group of philosophers, I suppose you'd call them, political philosophers, called the Situationists. We're going to get more into uh, what the Situationists were about uh, right now. They're talking about uh, your life, how completely we've been pushed into the corner of being consumers, every, almost every kind of relationship with the outer world that we have is as a consumer because society depends on consumption. That, that's what's hurting so bad now, hurting the government and, and the people who uh, want to profit from your labor. Okay, workers aren't going to work through no fault of their own. Consumption. Are you going to do it? Everyone has to decide for him or herself. Lindsey Graham is afraid that the extra six hundred bucks on your on your unemployment check is going to make you lazy, so you won't want to go to work. Can you imagine that? All right. Talk about a guy named Craig Hodges. There's a lot of attention. If you're a sports fan, there's been a lot of attention in the past several weeks about a documentary called The Last Dance. And The Last Dance highlights it's a 10 part video series about the Chicago Bulls basketball team in the 1990s, where they were the dominant team. Of course, their dominant player was Michael Jordan. And Jordan, uh, besides being an incredible player, became one of the biggest uh, poster guys for Nike shoes. And famously, or he said, or some people, did he say it or not? He said, he said, well, why don't you speak up on social issues like other players do, like Kareem, like uh, Eton, like Eddie Hodges, for example. And Jordan famously said that Republicans buy tennis shoes, too. Here's a guy named Craig Hodges who played with that team two years they won the, the uh, NBA title and uh, how he fell out with Jordan it's on the Guardian just um, Hodges Hodges and uh, now coaches basketball
clubs. They're billy clubs. Uh, three months earlier, 32%, he pointed out to them, one-third of the black population in Illinois lived below the poverty line. I just told the sport's two leading players that the Bulls and Lakers should sit out the opening game so we could stand in solidarity with the black community while calling out racism and economic inequality in the NBA, where there were no black owners and almost no black coaches, despite the fact that three-quarters of the player in the league, of the players in the league, were African-American. That's the same as it is now. Well, Jordan said Hod that Hodges was crazy. And Magic Johnson said, that's too extreme, man. Hodges regrets the failure to stage a united protest. Our generation dropped the ball, as a lot of us were more concerned with their own economic gain. We were at that point where branding was just beginning, and we got caught up in individual branding rather than a unified movement. Anyway, check it out. Phil Jackson and Hodges were the only ones who raised issues with President Bush about the war in Iraq. Um, Hodges was a brilliant shooter, by the way. 24 threes in a row. There's a video of it included on the website. So check it out, Eddie Hodges. Craig Hodges. I'm thinking of another Eddie Hodges. Here's a story about Clifton Jenks and the uh, whole production of the movie Salt of the Earth. Salt of the Earth is one of the movies I selected for my video channel. You might check it out. It's called Labor's Greatest Hits. Jenks was one of the leaders of the strike in New Mexico and Arizona against a copper mining company. And he came out and appeared in the film Salt of the Earth, which is still one of the few films that the U.S. government actually tried to suppress, made during the McCarthy era. It told about a bunch of Mexican, mostly Mexican miners on strike against uh, Empire Zinc. Uh, stands for one of the big copper companies. Um, and it's a bitter, protracted uh, strike. Jenks, Jenks was one of the leaders of the union and also came out in the movie. Uh, early adulthood, Jenks had trouble reconciling the church's preaching. 
not all God's children in their pews were strictly segregated. His reading progressed from Mining History to Socialism and Eugene V. Debs. At the University of Colorado, he became chair of the campus director of the American Student Union and joined the Young Communist League. Served in World War II. And uh, fascinating story. Check it out. Check it out on Portside, the legacy. The legacy of Clifton Jenks. Here's a nice thought, idea. Unfettered capitalism. Jeff Bezos, the um, CEO of Amazon, is set now to become the first trillionaire in world history. Robert Reich writes that Jeff Bezos is making $8,961,187 per hour. But he's refusing to provide paid sick leave for all of his employees. In this country at this time, you can get away with that. How much was that? Almost $9 million an hour he's making. Labor and Love Radio looks also at the number of workers who have lost health insurance during the COVID-19 crisis. In the U.S., 9,200,000 workers have lost their health insurance. Not one worker among a whole list of developed countries, not one other worker has lost his or her health insurance that reason. Australia, Belgium, Canada, Chile, all the way down to the UK. Zeros for the people who have lost their health insurance. As we talked about, the American death cult. They want you to go to work and risk your life. If you don't want to do that, to hell with you. You're off unemployment. Who cares what happens to you? As well as in assure, ensuring your employer that, well, if you do get sick and die, nobody can sue you. Only in America, you guys. Here's a story about fired Amazon employee continues organizing guy, uh, Craig Smalls is his, him, his name. And let's see, here's a Joe Biden ad. We don't want to see that. Uh, Chris Smalls, who was, uh, he made headlines as the man who led a walkout demanding Amazon to shut down their facility for cleaning after multiple workers tested positive for COVID-19. Please welcome back to the show. It's Chris Smalls. Hi, Chris. How are you? Hey, Jimmy, how you doing, brother? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Now, I I want to remind everybody what your story was. There was COVID uh, happening at the uh, Amazon F- Fulfillment Center in Staten Island, and uh, they were 
telling people about it. They weren't protecting them. They weren't giving you protective. And so you were you took it upon yourself to warn all the other workers there what was going on, and you got fired for that, correct? Absolutely. Okay. Yep. All got right. it. Now, I just want to just give people an update of what has happened since you left, since you were fired. This is from May 5th. An Amazon warehouse worker in New York has died of COVID-19. A worker at Amazon Staten Island New York Fulfillment Center has died of COVID-19. The company confirmed workers at the facility called JFK-8 have been calling for greater safety precautions since early March. That would be you. While Amazon has made changes, the number of workers diagnosed with the virus continues to climb. According to alerts viewed by The Verge, at least 29 workers have fallen ill. Amazon says the employee was last on site on April 5th and was placed on quarantine after he was confirmed to have COVID-19 on April 11th. We are deeply saddened by the loss of associated our site in Staten Island, New York. Amazon spokesperson said his family and his loved ones are in our thoughts and we are supporting his fellow colleagues. JFK 8 was the first of several Amazon facilities to have workers walk out in protest of the company's handling of COVID-19 in late March. And following that walkout, Amazon made a series of changes to warehouse processes, including mandating social distancing and screening workers for fevers. In its quarterly earnings release last week, the company said it planned to spend $4 billion, equivalent to its expected operating profit, on its COVID-19 response. But workers say the safety precautions are still insufficient and that their jobs often require them being in close proximity. What do you say to all that, Chris? Man, uh, you know, first and foremost... uh, my condolences to the family that lost somebody right. because uh, this is what I tried to prevent. You know, this is what I warned them was going to happen. The blood was going to be on their hands, and it is. Um, I told them that. And um, I know I stood up for the right thing, and I still feel that way. Um, it's just unfortunate because this building continues to operate. Um, not just this building, but buildings all across the nation um, continue to operate. Um, somebody else has died uh a couple week, a couple days ago, um, in Oakland, Oakland four. You know, what do you say to these families? The same statement they just said to the one tonight in Staten Island. Um, it's not, it's not enough. You know, people are dying. And so, and so, what do you? Th- so now, what also has happened? Well, first, first of all, what do you say to the four billion dollar pl- uh, promised money that they're going to spend? Do you believe? I don't believe they're going to do that. Do you? <sighs> It doesn't even matter. You know why? Because it, it makes it sound like we're supposed to be feel sorry for them. Yeah. Oh, my God. We're spending $4 billion. So yeah. so what? Don't give a damn. They should have spent the whole $24 billion he made during this pandemic. <sighs> they should have been did that. They should have did it 60 days ago. Christian Smalls there, one of the leaders of the actions against uh, Amazon. Whereas we heard Jeff Bezos was making $9 million an hour. And it's okay. No one has uh, questioned his right to do that. Because... Hopefully you know because let's play. Um, 
We started out with Arturo Toscanini playing the Internacional. And uh, on the, on the uh, Zon's anniversary or the occasion of Italy being uh, liberated from the Germans, Rome. Here, Billy Bragg. Thank you. 20 years ago this year, I was at the Vancouver Folk Festival, sitting uh, in the chow tent backstage, when Pete came along, sat down beside me, put his hand on my shoulder and said, Billy, I'm going to close the festival tomorrow night by singing the Internationale in memory of the uh, protesters in Tiananmen Square. This was just days after the brutality in Tiananmen Square. And Pete looked at me and he said, Billy, I want you to sing a verse of the English lyric. And I said, oh, Pete, please, mate. The English lyrics are so archaic that I, you know, arise ye starvelings from your slumbers, arise ye criminals of want, for freedom in revolt now slumbers, and here ends the age of Kant. I said, I don't even know what that means. So he said to me, why don't you write a new verse? Before I had a chance to complain, he closed his eyes, he took a sheet of paper, and he began to sing softly to himself the original French lyric, whilst writing down, without even looking, uh, verbatim an English translation. After he'd sung a verse and chorus, he handed it to me, and he said, there you go, you've got 24 hours. There are some people you just can't say no to. And Pete Seeger is one of those people. So uh, I want to thank him. I want to thank him for the encouragement he gave me because I'm now proud to say that my lyric is beside the original lyric in the IWW Little Red Songbook. So thank you, Pete. I owe you one. Stand up, all victims of oppression, for the tyrants fear your might. Don't cling so hard to your possessions. You have nothing if you have no rights. Let racist ignorance be ended for respect makes the empires fall. Freedom is merely privilege extended unless enjoyed by one and all. So come brothers and sisters for the struggle carries on. The Internationale unites the world in song. So comrades, come rally, for this is the time and place. The international ideal unites the human right.
Craig there with his version of the Internacional. Internacional is the anthem of the International Workers' Movement. It was adopted in 1890 by a group called the First International. The original French song goes, this is the final struggle, let us group together and tomorrow, the international will be the human race. Heaven not, we still be all. The words were written in June 1871 by Eugene Potier previously a member of the Paris Commune and were originally intended to be sung to the tune of the La Marseillaise. A man named Pierre de Guetter set the earlier lyrics to a new melody composed mostly of Pot Potier's lyrics. De Guetter's melody was first used publicly in July 1888 and soon thereafter, Potier's lyrics became closely associated with and widely used with Negater's new melody. Thus, the Internationale gained an identity that was entirely distinct and no longer in any way tied to the French national anthem. And of course, we have a version that we always play by a Japanese guitarist, Kerry Miraji. And well, that'll be our going out song today. This is the B, letting you know how it is. If one person works for a dollar, one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Remember, if you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Of course, they don't want you to have a union. Your work makes them rich. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Please stay tuned for Flat Black Plastic with my pal Scott o. Walker as your host. In the meantime, this is the B saying goodbye and good work. See you next week. Stay safe, and if you can't stay safe, stay as safe as you can. Bye, everybody.
that old jalopy. Looking laid back with that jazz cigarette. Oh, I'd send you a telegram if I didn't have to stop, drop, and roll me one of those now, would you, dear? Again, what the fuck is wrong with me? Yeah, you got it. I got it. Hey, this is MutinyRadio.fm. You're listening to Flat Black Plastic Show. Enjoy.
Hey folks, this is the Flat Black Plastic Show on Mutiny Radio. Dot FM. Chuck, run a power move on him. your boy Sifo here, here to let you know that the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival is March 1st through 7th, 2020 with special podcasts and comedy shows 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week. Get your tickets now on Eventbrite. Just search Mutiny Radio and get ready for 76 comics from all over the U.S. coming for 66 programs in 7 days all here at 2781 21st Street in the heart of the mission. Or if you can't be with us, listen live or podcast from anywhere. 